The education team for Jackson Family Minds proudly brings you these podcasts for your listening enjoyment. Hello, everybody. Sitting with the fabulous Sam Peekle at Vinwood Winery on an absolutely beautiful day. Sam, thank you so much for taking time to sit down with us. You were born in Australia and lived in a pretty fabulous place. Tell us about it. Well, good day, mate. Good morning. Thank you for making the time. Thanks for having me on the show. First time caller, long time listener. A bit about my childhood, I guess. Let's uh, let's dive into that. So I grew up in Adelaide in Australia. I grew up on the beach, beach boy, was a surf lifesaver, like a lifeguard, you call it over here. Went to a fantastic school just down the road, Sacred Heart College, played football. It was actually the best football school in Australia, funnily enough. Um, and that's AFL. That's not NFL. So uh, I urge everyone to uh, YouTube a couple of clips of AFL and you can uh, figure out what I'm talking about. But great sport. I guess the point of this story is that it's very active, outdoorsy, always loved being, you know, moving around, doing stuff. And then how I stumbled into the wine was it was a, a, a very unsexy story, but I'll, I'll try to make it as sexy as possible. In the final year of high school, you have to go and get a job. And I didn't know, you know, what to do. And usually, you know, family connections or whatever. And my, I was very good at science at school. So my auntie is a specialized lab person at the University of Adelaide. And so I thought, yeah, why not? I'll go work in her lab for a week. And I think I lasted about four hours of no one talking with all these nerds in lab coats. And I was like, well, this is not for me. <laughs> and my auntie Lisa, she's like, yeah, maybe you should try out the winery up the hill. And I was like, oh, I didn't know there was a winery at the school. And so she wa- she walks me up there and I just fell in love. There was machines, there was harvest, there were forklifts, there were people having fun. It was, you know, I could see that the, the science was important, but just right then that, that first week, I was like, oh, this is cool. And so, kind of that's how that's how it started. So you worked as a as a seller guy starting out, or well, so that was just for that first week, right? Like I, that was before we we even did anything else. Yep. Yeah. And so that was before we have to put in our college, you know, what we want to do. So my mum is a lawyer and my dad's an engineer, and they both said, "Don't do what we do." So I was like, "Well, fuck! What's what's there left? I might as well do winemaking." <laughs> <laughs> So, Heck yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and, and funnily enough, you know, Adelaide University is the home of one of the best wine schools on the planet. So that was very handy. I, I could live at home and it's very opposite to the college experience here, but just fell in love. I, I always tell my mother, mother and father, you know, I, I get to physically make something like my father does. Like he builds bridges and power stations and much more important things. And my mum can talk her way out of a paper bag. So I think the combination of me making wine and getting to talk about wine is such a, a fascinating you know, joining forces of, of my upbringing. So can't thank them enough. Let's uh, jump to your first wine job. Where was that? After finishing high school, I went straight to university and a lot of Australians do a gap year. I, uh, I went straight to school, did two years, just skated by by the skin of my teeth, like just did not fall into that university life. And I can't imagine why, no, Sam. No. Was there some misbehaving maybe yeah, a little there bit? Yeah, there, there were chicks and beers and all kinds of, all good, kinds good, of Australian good, good. ladies everywhere, but... I took a year off halfway through and a lot of it was tough to do that and, and to, to stop going with your buddies. But that's when I did my first harvest because like if I'm going to, you know, get into wine, I want to see what's all about. And, and the first job I got was at Darenberg in McLaren Vale. And I remember my first day, just an eager wine student, like ready to, you know, crush grapes and just be a legend. And, and uh, Chester Osborne came down. And he's like, I want you to forget everything you've ever learned. We make wine the old fashioned way here. And it was the best experience of my life. It was so much fun. Everything they do there is in five-ton bins, and they do a lot of cases. And they do these submerged cap, big stainless steel, kind of like Greg Brewer's, one-ton little stainless yeah, yeah. bins. Mm-hmm. These are five-tonners. And that was my job was to just 
pump them out and to fix the old lattice and wood. They would wax them. There was some old guy there. That, that's all he did all year was just wax these timbers. And it was just the most hands-on, just covered heads. It was just fucking awesome. And just, I fell in love. And it's kind of like you said, it's old world. It's, it's like the traditional way of making it. And, and what were they growing? Basically Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot? And... Oh, fuck no, mate. It was McLaren. It was Grenache, Shiraz, Grenache, Shiraz. country. Grenache, Shiraz. Yeah. We did some Cabernet. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of the old school, you know, Dead Arm, Shiraz, all the, they had a lot of old vine stuff. So it was really great for me. And, and you know, I didn't realize at the time, but seeing all these nuances of every vineyard in a five-ton lot, you know, you can you learn a lot more, a lot faster than you do in a big 50-ton tank, right? Mm-hmm. And it was hands-on and I just, I just, I fell in love. It was, uh, it was just a, a great experience. How long were you there? <laughs> Probably fucking two months or something, no, three months, just fathers. But that was what I needed. That was the, that was the key. They probably couldn't, couldn't get rid of me fast enough. It's funny, you know, you say that you take a year off. I actually took about nine years off and uh, and it was the best thing I ever did because then when I wanted to go to work, it was great. Your next position after that quick two-month kind of immersion in old world style making wine, next, next stop. Step. Next step was actually my family had a vacation to the West Indies, which was great. We saw the we saw Australia win the Cricket World Cup, another game that's fantastic that you guys probably don't know what I'm talking about. Oh, but, yeah, we do. But, yeah, world champions. There was no big deal. That was fantastic. But then I came and saw an uncle in uh, Louisiana. So it was my first time in America back in 2007. But I was 20 and 11 months. And I look still like a baby, and I couldn't get served. And that was very frustrating after working in liquor stores and bars and then did my first harvest as a young winemaker and I couldn't get a beer in this country. So I promptly left and uh, went over to London and worked in a wine shop. I met a kid at Darenberg and then he just, I ended up staying on his couch for six months. We became best buddies. Uh, he helped me get a job in a, in a wine shop and a, a good pub just out of London. I know there's a long story, but it's a good one. I was trying to find a job anywhere in Europe and because I had knew nobody and only done one harvest, I had zero connections. So that was the problem. I was looking for Italy, France, Germany, anywhere to do a harvest. I got invited to this Greek tasting, caught the train down to London. We walk into this beautiful building and I was like, holy shit, this is pretty nice, like white marble, gorgeous. And I saw a little sign, it was like the Institute of Masters of Wine. And that didn't really didn't really register in my little, little young brain back then. But needless to say, I walked into this tasting and it was a... Uh, the Greek winemaker, Angelos, my boss, me, and some chap called Steve Spurrier and Jancis Robertson. Wow. <laughs> yep. And I didn't really quite understand the gravitas of that of that moment in my uh, my young wine life. But anyway, I was I was just blown away by this guy's wines, like Greek wine. I'd never really heard of Greek wine. You know, they're famous for that Retzina shit that tastes horrible. And But these wines he showed me were world class. They were absolutely phenomenal. And he showed me photos of the winery. He just built this gorgeous thing up in northern Greece. And I and I asked. I was like, "Hey, how's Harvest? What's going on?" He's like, "What do you you know? What do you mean?" I was like, "Well, I'm looking for a job. I have no connections." And he's like, "Well, we we picked Sauvignon Blanc yesterday. You should come tomorrow." And I just laughed. And then I uh, I remember looking down the table at my boss and my boss Steve Spurrier and Jansen Robinson all just looked at me and they all just said, "That would be a great opportunity, Sam. You should do that." So. I mean, that is perfect. That's yep. like karma. Everything just lined up for you. Yep. So then the next day, I packed my bags and was on the you know the long journey to Greece. I um, yeah, off I went. He picked me up, and I had a wonderful harvest there. It was incredible. The wines were like state of the art, gorgeous wines, native varieties like Zinamavros, but he did a lot of New World varieties, Syrah, Sauvignon Blanc. And I didn't know at the time, but he's one of the most highly regarded Greek winemakers there ever has been. You know. He would make me draft emails back to Decanter Magazine with Steve Spurrier and he sent me on the road 
to to wine show in Germany. Like it just, I was only there for a couple months, but it was a, f- a fantastic experience. I'm still friends with him to this day. Every time I see his wines out for a state out in the out in the wild, I always text him. It was it was very kind to me. But that was kind of what I needed. So I went back to living on the couch after that in London, and went, ended up going back home. That was kind of the fire that I needed in my ass to uh, to actually knuckle down. And I went from just scraping by the first two years to getting distinctions and actually being a smart kid. When was your first winemaking job? Man, well, I can we can talk about this forever because I think this harvest I just done was my 25th. Wow. During those two years back at the wine school, I did harvest at night. So I really just pushed and pushed and pushed, almost killed myself because I was doing a night shift at the winery, then driving to, to university and doing class. And I literally was just eating chocolate-covered coffee beans just roar out of the packet to keep me awake. So the, the candy for, for the sugar buzz and then the coffee for the, yeah. Yeah, the coffee almost, buzz. I, I remember I dropped a, a barrel when we were topping once. And I still, I'll never forget the side of it. The barrel actually bounced. Like it doesn't just crush like you see in a cartoon, but it bounced a good, you know, three feet in the air. And then then it just crumbles and wine went everywhere. And that was when uh, I decided to turn it back at lunch. Oh my God. <laughs> but everyone's got one of those. I'm sure everyone maker has got one of those nasty stories. But yeah, that was the two harvests. So then before I'd graduated, I um, I'd done four harvests and that was a lot more than my colleagues or my classmates. And then my first real big boy job was, um, I actually got an assistant winemaker job out of class, which was awesome. And I was just like, laughing at all my buddies because they were just doing their first seller hand job and I got an assistant job and that was that was where um it started off great but the in between me interviewing for the job they were doing high class you know McLarenvale Brossa Fruit it was out in Langhorn Creek another business had bought the winery and they just were doing some shit from the Riverland like just bulk wine and so I got there and I was thinking I was walking in to be this little, little legend and the salary was fantastic, but I just, you know, we didn't, I didn't enjoy the wine we were making. It was, it was just bulk wine. And that was a very key moment in my career where I realized that even if the money's good, if you don't like what you're making, then what's the point? That was a real good lesson I learned early on. And that's from that moment onwards, I decided to go work at every premium place I could possibly find. Yep. And it made my parents pretty annoyed, but off I went. I completely agree. And, and, you know, a lot of wine companies offer huge salaries for, for sales and, and, but you have to sell really shitty wine. I mean, so here's the bottom line. Do you want to sell great wine and work for a great company? And I think that's where Jackson family wines is just, I mean, no matter where I go, no matter what I do anyway, I digress. I always do a Jackson family commercials in these because I really love where I work. You, you didn't like it. And, and you were probably always looking for the next groovy a stop and and how did that come about was it one of those magic things that just kind of dropped into your lap or were you actually out searching for the next step uh good question well my buddy actually one of my best best friends from um wine school scotty zekin the zucchini we used to call him he uh he was a great friend of mine still is one of my best buddies back at home but he uh he started working at this little shitty winery that no one have ever heard of called yangara and Pete had taken him under his wing. And they were, I think they were still custom crushing in, in McLaren Vale somewhere. They didn't have the winery built yet. But Scotty had arranged to do a harvest in the Northern Hemisphere. And he was going to a place called Stone Street. And so this is in 2010, mind you. We have no idea what the hell California's like or the wine or Jackson family at this point. And um, I was like, you know what? I'm pretty fucking done with this shithole. Like, let's, I'm, I'm going to California. Fuck it. 
And so last minute, he got me a job at La Crema. We're flying blind, the two of us. We actually, we got here. We looked like the Jonas Brothers. We had these big fucking curly afros. And we ended up having an absolute ball. And that's kind of, of when the, the penny dropped that uh, <laughs> the accent gets you in trouble over here. And we had, we had a lot of fun, but it was a great... It was a great harvest. And we still didn't quite understand what Jackson family was, was like then, but that's kind of, that was kind of the kickoff to my, uh, I want to call it my world tour fades. That's when I really just got stuck into the travel and just fell in love with all, all things wine. You know, I learned very quickly that if, if you're in the wine industry, you usually like to travel and you like to drink and you like to have good food. Yes. And it doesn't matter what country these kids were from, everyone just gelled and it was, it was just really fun. Like the, the sense of community and, camaraderie i think was addictive you know being, being a athlete in a team sport that was something that came very naturally for me no i hear you i mean i you know i, I worked in restaurants when i was hay tracking around america and and that 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 kind of culture and i think the wine industry has a a similar culture where y'all y'all kind of get along because it's it's a special place there's always uh, exceptions to that so there's always an asshole there's always or <laughs> or four yeah for sure um but i don't find that with jackson family which is great they're usually gone within a year which is which is excellent and and uh, fortunately i survived my seven almost firings okay so you're at la crema yep and you are assisting i think i was like lead intern i can't remember what that was called but i thought that was pretty cool very cool yep work with um Craig McAllister was a little junior fella. Elizabeth Douglas was there. Craig, I mean, uh, Eric was there. And uh, Melissa Stackhouse was Melissa, the boss. Melissa, yes. Yeah. And she loved me. She, she took me under her wing and taught me everything I need to know. And I had a wonderful time there. Can't have no bad words to uh, to say. The Giants also won the uh, World Series that year. So I decided I like baseball and it's great when the home team wins. Yes. After that, that's when I really started traveling. So I... I went back and did a harvest at Shore and Smith in the Adelaide Hills, which was Australia's kind of premier Sauvignon Blanc um, winery, which is funny because I fast forward to my career now and I'm making Sauvignon Blanc. I had no idea that was going to happen, but that was fascinating to learn. They, they did like super reductive, kind of like Marcia does, you know, pristine, perfect winemaking, like gorgeous wines, absolutely fantastic. So that was great to learn. And they were started by three MWs. And what, what they do at the end of the harvest is before you, you know, before you leave for your next adventure, they say, look, where would you like to go? We have a whole world of, of connections. We're going to help you get the next job. And everyone wanted to go to Burgundy or, you know, wherever. And I was like, you know what? I want to go to Champagne. And so it turned out to be a very hard ask because, you know, cracking that nut was, was very difficult. And I actually don't know how, how it came about, but I ended up getting a very last minute position at Hugel in Alsace. Mm -hmm which I said yes to because I hadn't heard back from Champagne. And I was like, oh, Hugo, not bad. I'll take that. You know, pretty pretty dope winery. But then I ended up getting a job at this, uh, uh, it was called, it's called Verve du Vaux. So it's, it's, the, it's the biggest champagne house you've never heard of. It's like a king of cooperatives. And so there I was. And I didn't, I didn't want to say no to Hugo, but I was honest. And, and, you know, that's something my parents always said, like, you, you know, stick with your, whoever you commit Absolutely. to first. They, yep. Nobody can uh, judge you. you badly for yep. that. Yeah. But they said, well, you know, this harvest is very unique. You can probably do both. And I was like, well, fuck yeah. So packed the bags, went to Champagne. I, I remember I was driving into uh, into Rams or Rams, however you say it. And, you know, the marble, the gorgeous town, it's like it's like Disneyland for kids. And I get out with my suitcase and I think, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. Champagne looks awesome. And the winemaker came out and he goes, oh, no, get back in the car. This is not where you're working. I was like, whoa, 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 what do you mean? This is what I'm, this is what I'm supposed to be. 
And he goes, no, you're from Australia. You're going to help us with our red wine making. And I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me, man. <laughs> Racist. Yeah, I didn't come here to make fucking red wine. I came here to make bubbles. But uh, anyway, this is another. I'm sorry if we're going to take too long, but my stories kind of have this long-winded nature. I love but, it. Love it. So we drove all the way to the very southernmost tip of Champagne in a town called Rissé. And unbeknown to me, I thought all Champagne was, you know, white, the three, the three you know, varieties. But this town was the only place that you're legally allowed to make a still red wine in Champagne. And so I get to this little village, it's super cute. I can't speak much French at this point. So I was like, oh shit. And I got there, I think a day before everybody else. So I was shitting my pants in this big, it was like a big um, dormitory. So you have the winery and then on site is like a kitchen dormitory, like four bunk beds in each room. And so- For the interns? Yeah, so yeah, everyone, yeah. everyone who works there um, stays there on house in-house and it was <laughs> it turned out to be fucking wild it was like a bunch of firefighters would take a month off to make a bunch of money and we just partied it was all you could drink champagne oh. breakfast lunch and dinner as oh. long as you could go back and do your job so being a young australian dude you know i was uh, in prime time form back then so we, we punished a lot of bottles and it was it was really odd because i i, I was really disappointed right to work down this little cooperative but the president of that cooperative happened to also be the president of all of the cooperatives in Champagne. So he kind of was like Don Corleone. This guy was a fucking badass. And so what I didn't realize as well is every fancy champagne house would come to our cooperative to buy the red for their champagne, for their rosés. So like one morning, the Krug winemaker turned up with a six pack of Krug. So we popped them bottles, tasting with him. Billy Cart, Paul Roger, Veuve Clicquot, Wet and Chandon, Ayla, any champagne house you've ever met. And I wish- That's I, my dream come yeah. true. And it was my dream come true. So we were, and I met all these people and I was obviously still young and foolish back then and didn't save all these people's contacts like a fucking idiot. But anyway, we had a great time. Moral of the story is if you ever find yourself in that, <laughs> write down their emails. And, and, and keep them in your little black book. That's exactly. so awesome. So anyway, that was a great, that was a great month of my, uh, of my life. I got cavities in a month though, because the problem is tasting ferments was, uh, you know, the, the pH is uh, out of control. So just burning your teeth. Yeah. So I, in one month, I go, I go cavities. But we were drinking, you know, tasting champagne tanks, juice, ferments. Then when the other wine makes would come. And then at lunchtime, we're drinking champagne with our lunch. Then at nighttime, we're drinking champagne with our dinner. So it was fun. It was fun. And you're leaving so many good things out, and I know you have yeah. to. So that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's good. All right. Um, let's fast forward to moving back to California and starting with Jackson Family Wines and, and this incredible rise to the top that you've had here, making some of the best wines in the Jackson Family portfolio. So how did you get back here? All right. Well, I'll, yeah. Sorry for, for uh, going no. deep in this. No, I love this. I'll try to catch up. I on, wish we could do an hour. On five or so, uh, five or so harvest. But after Champagne, went down to Hugel, had a magical time there. And it was the opposite of white wine making that I learned at Shaw and Smith. It was Oxford, I remember the first day we're pressing Riesling from the Grand Cru sites in the Schonenberg right there in Rickvia, and there was no gas in the tank. I was like, dude, you got to put some fucking nitrogen in there, you know? And he's just like, mate, we've been doing this since 1639. We know what we're we doing. Know how to do it. And so that was fantastic learning. Like, yeah, you yeah. know, the wines were incredible. I can't thank the Hugels enough. Very kind. Yeah, so then after that, I fell in love with champagne. I want to be a champagne winemaker, right? Because mm -hmm. you're making a product that people only drink when they're happy. And that just stuck with me. I was like, that's fantastic. Like, I want to do that. Australia didn't have much of a champagne industry. They're very small little brands. Um, one of the winemakers at Moe and Chandon organized a job for me at Chandon in Victoria. And this, these, <laughs> these Australians called me up one night. They're like, oh, g'day, is this Sam? I was like, yeah, mate, how's it going? 
And they're like, well, we just got told by our boss's 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 boss that we're going to give you a job. And I was like, oh, that's great. Thanks. But it was eight weeks at minimum pay in Victoria. So that was a you know different state to where I was living. And at the same time, Scotty Zucchini, he comes back in the picture and he's like, hey, Yangaris has built this winery. It's pretty fucking awesome. Like, do you want to come work for me? And he offered me six months of like maximum money. And I was like, well, the champagne dream got shot down. in the back pocket. And, yeah, yeah. And uh, that was kind of the start of the Jackson family roller coaster ride. And, you know, it made my mum very happy because I was getting a real job after traveling the world. You know, I was finally back at home and working with my best mate in a state-of-the-art winery. Like, I fell in love with the Angara. Pete was incredible. The wines were incredible. The estate, Michael Lane, best Australian vineyard manager I've ever worked with because i got to give shout-outs to Gabe and Jan over here. Yeah, they're pretty good. It was just incredible. Like, fantastic. One harvest, we decided to buy another property right before harvest, you know, a little place called Hickerbotham. And we did it. We had no extra staff. It was 400 extra tons and we were really fucking annoyed with Pete. You know, it was like double production with no more people. And then what made it even worse was some fucking giant dude, some American turned up in the parking lot. <laughs> Mr. Carpenter. Yeah, well, we had no idea who Mr. Carpenter was for the whole harvest. Now, let me tell you, we, uh, we treated him like one of our own and uh, it wasn't until... <laughs> Right at the end of the harvest, we finally Googled who this guy was and the penny dropped and we're like, oh, fuck, please don't tell Pete what we were doing. <laughs> long story short, he, I guess, enjoyed my work ethic and we got along really well. So he asked me if I wanted to come and do a harvest at La Coya. So in 2012, I traveled back to America and did a harvest up at La Coya, La Hoda, Mount Brave, Cardinal. And that's kind of where the penny dropped. Like Mountain Cabernet, learning from Chris Carpenter was a dream come true. The best, through. the best of the best. Yep. And the accent still worked, so it was still going great. And the Giants won again. It wasn't just accent, it was your fabulous personality, and and, uh, and that's just awesome. So Chris Carpenter, what yep. a stud. What yep. an incredible stud. So one harvest with him, and yep. did you want to do a second, or did they offer Oh, I would, have, I would have cut off my left arm to keep working with Chris, but uh, Laura Diaz made sure I, I scurried away pretty closely. But no, it was good. I had to go back to work at Pete with Pete, and so I went back and did another harvest down Australia. Didn't travel for a year, so I did some WSET stuff. So I, I got my, uh, I think I didn't do the diploma, but I did, yeah, I did level three. And then in 2014, I had itchy feet again, seeing all these, the sun sunshine in california so i packed the bags and pete arranged a harvest at stone street with graham and lisa and so you know i was i was collecting these legendary winemakers like baseball cards at this point you know it was fantastic so learn a lot about different mountain cabernet and and something that you're very familiar with like alexander mountain estate and the, the harsh tannins you know what you have to do to soften them up and had a great time graham became one of my best buds mountain bike just had a wonderful time and when, uh, when it was time to go back to Australia, you know, I, I went back and did another harvest with Pete. But, you know, at this point, I was ready to be a winemaker. You know, I was, his, I was his assistant at that point, And I really thought that I was ready to grow and take that next step. But, you know, Pete was not budging. He wasn't going anywhere. And it was the hardest conversation I had to have. But I was like, look, Jackson family has been wonderful to me. And, and I would love to stay in the company. But I'm ready for another challenge. And Pete was like, oh, mate, that's, you know, I won't do a Pete voice, but uh, <laughs> he'll get me in trouble. But he was very, very helpful and put me back in touch with the homies back over here. And I got a call and I think it was from Bob Carroll. And he's like, hey, you want to you wanna come and do a harvest over here? And we'll give you a little brand called Capture. And I was like, well, why the fuck not? And here I am. All right. So <laughs> let's talk about Pine Mountain. And let's talk about Capture, a wine that I never have enough to sell. I yep. go to markets. They say they're sold out. They can't. What? 
Now, is there potential to make more Sauvignon Blanc and more Cabernet? And can we get this ball rolling? Because this wine is phenomenal. Yes, I think that's uh, an answer that everyone wants to hear. The answer is yes. So the good and bad thing about Capture and Pine Mountain is is Pine Mountain, right? It's it's the next great thing, but no one knows about it. So, you know, the other problem is, is it's 100% single vineyard wines, you know. So you live by the sword, you die by the sword. So... When we have a great vintage, you know, the wines are fantastic. But the problem is now, you know, after 2020, we had the smoke problem. And Pine Mountain was the worst affected because the, the smoke sat on the inversion layer. So it was extra concentrated at altitude. So I was very proud within the Jackson family winemakers. I think I made the most smoky wine. So if I'm going to do anything, I'm going to try to do, do it the best, best as possible. right on. So that was a, that was a no-brainer. And then uh, in 2022, we had a frost event, which is very unusual for, for a mountain, especially yeah. being on the top of the mountain. But we lost our Sauvignon Blanc. So these bits and pieces and these hiccups of, of, of having a small brand and trying to grow it is, was very challenging. And I think, you know, being sold out right now is, is kind of the worst it's going to get. Well, that mountain is pushing, pushing the envelope. I mean, you know, you and I were up there in July and, and the, the Frost fans are on. I mean, you're talking the, the biggest risk factor that you can possibly have, but the risk is worth it when it pays off and it usually does pay off. Yeah, so big risk, big reward, big friend. risk, big reward. So I know how Marcia does it. I know how Lisa does it when you're out in the vineyard. Cause you're a vineyard on, you're out there every single day. You're walking through the vineyards. What are you looking for when you're, when you're taking care of your vineyards and we do have the best vineyard guys on the planet, as far as I'm concerned, did you work with Marcia much at, at stone street or was it more Lisa and, and Graham? Uh, I think I leaned on all of them. Marcia was the greatest teacher for a young kid making Sauvignon Blanc because when I when I got captured, it had the tradition, so it was a, you know, the fruit forward stainless steel style, and that, and then we also had a late Pionier, which is a barrel style. So Marcia was instrumental. You know, I, I wouldn't be sitting here without Marcia. So hats off to her. And then Lisa, the same with Cabernet with Graham. So those two, you know, took me to the mountain, taught me about mountain farming, you know, ferment management, cap management. So. They were fantastic. Couldn't have had a better trio of mentors, I guess is the right word. But as for the vineyard, you know, I, I was chuckling when you were asking a question because I don't get to walk the vineyard. I have to hike. I, I, hike I, met, I met hike the yeah. vineyard. You actually need a motorcycle probably to, to, to but, do uh, it. No, Pine Mountain is a, it's a wonderful beast. You know, honestly, and this is going to sound terrible. Like I wish I could say I'm a, a vineyard master, but the vineyard, it, it's so stressed the vines take care of themselves. You know, we don't have to drop fruit. We barely do anything up there because the vines are so stressed, they only produce what they can. It's incredible. It's, it's the lazy Australian in me that just uh, that just goes with the flow. But, you know, for all of those of you that have been up there, you can see how pathetic the vines look. You know, they've, they've, they've been up there for just over 10 years now and they certainly don't look like a 10-year-old vine. You know, they've got weedy little trunks and like shitty little canopies, but... It, it, it doesn't. I, it doesn't look the best, but the fruit is the best. I always what... joke that if uh, if there was a pita for grapes, this company would be in big trouble because we torture our grapes, and 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 that's why we get such absolutely amazing fruit. Um, what is the average yield of your Cabernet Sauvignon up there? I mean, Silver Oak gets maybe eight to ten tons an acre, I believe. What what are you what are you getting on your cap? Geez, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? No, we get uh, we get we're lucky if we. Uh get over two and a half yeah you know maybe three we had a good year this year just gone so i think we got three tiny uh, berries yeah tiny berries and the same i guess with sauvignon blanc too sauvignon blanc you can get a good healthy crop five to you know ten tons wherever but yeah we do not get a <laughs> we don't get much crop so it's 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 a, it's a struggle and 
you know, making a wine from a single vineyard, you know, puts a lot of pressure on the winemaker. You know, I wish I could blend in some other things sometimes. Or if you have a little whoopsie, you know, you can sort of fix that mistake. But, you know, the I love the high pressure winemaker. I think it's fantastic. If you've got one tank of Sauvignon Blanc, it better be. It better be the best. Yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm missing Sauvignon Blanc at Stone Street. So that's why I'm so excited to to be selling capture because I need a Sauvignon Blanc in my lineup. So I'm really, really excited about that. Now, what is your philosophy on on picking? I mean, is it do you do you do what Marcia does, go out and peel the skin back and look at the seed and taste it and do all that groovy old world stuff? I'm sure you do that, but what is your philosophy on on ripeness and and uh, bricks? It's certainly a morning thing. I got to be up in the morning because it gets hot. You know, it's windy, the elevation, the inversion layer. You know, we can talk about Pine Mountain for for weeks, but um when I got capture and the opportunity to make a wine from a vineyard, because at this point, no one had ever made a wine from there. You know, Pine Mountain was brand new. We'd never farmed at that elevation. We'd just shy 3,000 feet, blah, 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 blah. And so I didn't really have a lot to go on. You know, it doesn't taste like Napa. It doesn't taste like Sonoma. So, was, God. so then, you know, one of my first goals was if there's no place like it, it shouldn't taste like any other place. And mm-hmm. that was something that really resonated with me. You know, I really want to showcase the mountain and being a young, energetic shit disturber that I was in my youth you know I was always telling winemakers use less oak use less oak and then when it was finally my turn to make the wine I was like well fuck I gotta <laughs> I gotta, I gotta to practice what I preach there. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so that was my first goal was to you know I really wanted you to smell the wine I don't want you to smell the barrel right because we've all been in and all of you listening we've all been into those seminars and we've all listened to people selling us wine and you talk about the vineyard you see pictures it looks gorgeous and then you smell oak and that was really something that I I keep trying and tried very hard to to not have happen with capture so to help with you know obviously the the oak helps with the mountain tannins so if i'm not gonna you know use that to kind of manipulate or, or not manipulate but you know to, to soften tame. yeah to tame i i decided to pick early as well i was like well let's let's go down this road and and i remember graham you know questioning me you know gently like you sure you want to do this like only 30 percent new oak and picking cab at 24 and a half so and i was like well mate my, my goal is is i'm gonna try it and if it doesn't sell, then guess what? I use more oak and pick it a bit later. But I think the the pendulum swung and people are looking for that kind of, I don't know how to describe it without saying like an idiot. So it's, it's not like a new age light cabernet, but it's just, it's got a brighter fruit profile. You know, it's more red fruit driven. It's not big black fruit. There's not so much oak on there and, and it's got great natural acid. So it's it's not for everyone. I'm hoping it is for everyone, but you know, we're, 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 we're fighting the good fight and, and I'm just happy to make something unique. And now, now it's up to you guys to go sell it. And and it's and it's our pleasure to sell it. And then what I'm finding, especially you know, with the Stone Street wines, with the the similar kind of uh, earlier picking and that incredible acid backbone, this is what people are looking for. There's so many Napa cabs that are just so over the top fruit forward. I am so excited when I take capture out and they actually have it in inventory. So I think we are just at the beginning of really really great things. Every year I say the wine is better than the previous year, and I feel like that's that's unusual, but I think that's what happens when you know I'm getting better as a winemaker and I'm understanding the site more, but the vines are also coming into their own. You know, Every year, the, the, the roots are getting a bit deeper, the vines are getting stronger, and I think they're coming into their own. So I'm so excited about what's in the shed, right? Like as a Cabernet guy, like I know, I know what's there and I know what's coming, and the 19, I think, was exquisite, and I'm very yes, proud of those wines. It. But the 21s, I think, are better, and I think the 22s are better, and you know the 23s are, are looking incredible. But as for the next thing, I you know there's some there's some rumors you know circulating. I won't I won't divulge too many things, but you know hopefully we're going to start adding a couple other mountains to our portfolio. So okay. 
we're gonna we're gonna stretch our little wings and maybe make a Cabernet Franc, maybe do a Malbec, maybe a Chenin Blanc. There, there could be some things happening. I, I, no, nothing has been, you know, cemently approved. We all know how that goes. But I also experiment with a Chardonnay and a Pinot from Anderson Valley. I, I, I just went shopping on all the mountains. If we can kind of emulate the Lacoya model of, of, you know, the four mountains, then I think we have plenty of mountains over this side. So I think that's that's really exciting for me and that's the future. I can't say that's definitely happening yet or not so that's a big teaser but you know I'm, I'm really looking forward to releasing the the 21 cab and i apologize and i know we're out of stock but it's not ready it's not ready for your mouths it's not ready for your buyer's mouths i don't want to disappoint anybody but i also uh, don't want you to panic when you have this tannin beast of a wine and then not buy it again so please know that i'm i know it sucks but it's the right thing to do but but here's the thing and and this is you know something i've always thought Running out of a wine or, or or not having it because it's not better to release is so much better. You know, it's it's like the slow dime or the fast nickel. I mean, that's that's what I like. And I think it's great that you have the authority to say, I am not releasing this wine because I know wines have been released too soon. And the initial you don't want you'll never get that buyer back once they've tasted the wine. I mean, 2021 and it's 2024. I mean, what do you think in another another year? I want to wait till Christmas, but obviously if you miss OND, that's pretty stupid. Yeah, October, so maybe, maybe so maybe like just in time for that. Or if we miss that and it's still not ready, then next January. Because I think once we get into a, a logical flow, exactly, and then we can, because it's been really tough. You know, we've had these off years. 2017 was 500 cases. Then we made 150 cases in 18. We got a great score. So we sold out that in a month. So that pushed us. And then we made a lot more in 19. But then that, that's had to stretch two, three years after the fire. So... It's been a challenge. It's been a challenge. It's been a real big challenge. Well, I'm going to say from my perspective, please make as much as you can because people, every market I go to, they're asking for it. You're such a great spirit and a great human being and a phenomenal winemaker. So, Sam, thank you so much for sitting down with us and talking to us about your passion in life. Well, I appreciate that. You're making me blush. Oh, I got, yeah. Oh, yeah. Face for radio. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs>